Welcome to Simulate Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear ordinary. Underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Jamie Kelter loves books. This is part two of an interview. Jamie is a mom of three, a nurse, and perhaps the most avid reader I know. I previously interviewed Jamie and her husband, Sean, about marriage and kids. But last time and today, it's a rare pleasure to discuss books with somebody who reads this much. Well, last time we discussed Gone with the Wind, Little Women, and Harry Potter. And now we're going to jump into Songs of Fire and Ice. So, um, to be honest, I have not read it. And I haven't seen the show. And Jamie, I honestly find it intimidating. Um, I didn't add it up, but it looks like it's at least 5,000 pages long. <laughs> and uh, I've read that the author wants to add two more books in one particular series of it, and then add a book to a prequel that he wrote. And the prequel goes back 300 years. Plus, apparently, there's an encyclopedia on the whole thing. It just seems like it's endless. So, so I don't know. Talk me into it. Why do you love Songs of Fire and Ice? Oh, man. So, okay, as a nerdy fan here, I have to tell you, it's Song Singular of Ice and Fire. Oh, totally I backwards. don't know why that really matters. It probably doesn't. No, but. I mean, if I were the author, I'd want to have my title accurately <laughs> represented. And that's the name of the series, whereas um, the first novel is called Game of Thrones, and when HBO made it, the television series, they uh, just made that the name of the whole show because, I don't know, that's what they do when they go from book to movie, I guess. But so this series is epic in every sense of the word. I mean, it's epic in its length, but um, I kind of talked about this with Harry Potter and that the world that J.K. Rowling creates is so um, incredibly detailed and you just want to jump right in. But this world is the most, I've read a lot of fiction and this is the most fully realized fictional world I think that there has ever been. It's, you can, even after the first book, but especially as you get through the series, you just get this sense of how massive, I mean, it's a planet. Like it's not, it's not just a country or a state. It's, it's many, many countries and um, every single civilization has its own personality. And somehow the author keeps track of all this. Um, and so an encyclopedia is actually like quite the aid for the reader. Like I would really enjoy the encyclopedia. I have not seen it, but at the beginning, beginning or maybe end, depends on the edition of every book. There's a, there's like a family tree for each family that you're encountering. And it, it lists the places that they live. So I have to frequently reference that, or I had to the first time through the series. So I can see how it's intimidating, but as a fan, it just makes me love it all the more because it makes me appreciate the absolute sheer genius of this author. His prose is so good. It's so good, but his mind is just this vast expanse of brilliance. I don't know how he keeps it all straight, let alone develops these complicated plot lines and fully fleshed out characters. The characters are like real people, real flaws, real things to love about them, but they're just, they're so real. They're just jumping off the page and into your life. So, um, 
it's it's just incredible. That sounds absolutely spectacular. That's a pretty good sale. Let me just ask for purposes of comparison. Have you re ever read Lord of the Rings? I have, and honestly, I've been wanting to give it another go. I read it in like middle school and high school, and I think I probably wasn't mature enough to fully appreciate it, especially not the themes of Catholicism that I know are woven in. Um, but yes, I've heard big fans of Lord of the Rings love Middle Earth and everything that it entails, and um, so I can I can see a parallel, but I do think the scale is still smaller. Okay, seriously, you think the scale in Lord of the Rings is smaller than Game of Thrones? Yes. That's amazing because his son, Christopher Tolkien, has published well over 10 notebooks um, from his yeah. father and just various tales that he's completed. Um, there was one that came out just last year or so on Amazon and just immediately shot to the top 10. Oh, I didn't even know about this. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's there's book after book after book after book that his son has completed for him that are all oh. just kind of ancillary to the to the Lord of the Rings. Um, but okay, so it might it might even be more of a world builder than Lord of the Rings. How about Dune? Have you read Dune? I haven't. That's one uh, fantasy that I have not jumped into. Okay, okay. Well, um, getting back to George R. R. Martin then. Um, I just hear that the series is, and, and I'm not saying this as an objection, but some people would object, very bloody. Absolutely. It is quite violent. Now, I do think um, the show is, I mean, it's obviously more graphic, and people may be projecting what they know of the show into the series too, because a book can only describe so much. The book makes you imagine it in your own head, which some people would say is worse, but um, I think it's worse to see someone else's realization of it on a screen. But yes, it, it displays humanity in every form. And there's a lot of war. There's a lot of just totally selfish, greedy power struggle in the series because the whole series is a, a fight for, the throne that rules the realm, the whole world. And um, it, there's just some really selfish, really selfish, horrible people who want to sit on the throne. And so they will do whatever it takes to get there. And yeah, nasty, gory violence is how some people achieve their ends. Gotcha. So to a certain degree, it's, I don't know, it's like the mafia versus the gangsters versus the Nazis versus the Soviets at a certain point. Oh, yeah. But everything is like kind of medieval. Um, if you're going to compare, it's a fictional world and it's not given a time period, but it would, I would say roughly medieval if we're looking at real history, you know, horses and um, swords and shields and, um, Things like that. Okay, okay. Um, I also hear it's very sexy. It is. Um, and again, the book is much more subtle. There, I would say the author takes care to just write the scenes he needs to write for the development of the characters and for the advancement of the plot. Um, however, gosh, it, it's I'm so torn because HBO picked it up. And HBO is really the only... I think outlet that could have done it so well because they just they're excellent filmmakers like they have so much talent however they have 
the ability to not have to censor anything on their media and they took full advantage of that and just totally exploited all the possible sex scenes and um it was it was really hard to watch at times and i know you know good catholic guys who like the show would do different things like there's like programs that will skip parts or like blur things out for you like if you stream it through a certain service it will like yeah it'll skip it and just tell you what happens with like text so you don't have to watch it or you know, other guys would just close their eyes or whatever, let their wives fill them in on the details. So I appreciate people's efforts like that because I can only imagine it was difficult. But um, yeah, totally over the top HBO. That's what they do. But the books, yeah, there's a lot. But again, it's like there's a lot of people in the story who aren't very moral, who just use people to their own ends or um so it's definitely just painting humanity at its grisliest in many ways. Okay, so I, I definitely get the picture that it's showing the bottom type of a person, you know, the most bloodthirsty, cutthroat, betray people, stab people in the back, that kind of thing. Does it also have people, you know, I don't know, average people? And Oh, yeah. And does it have, I don't know, There's for lack of a There's a lot of examples of heroic virtue as well and the, the cool thing is that characters you don't expect end up being the most surprisingly virtuous and you just you just never know what to expect and I mean George R. R. Martin doesn't play by any rules so it's another thing I love about him as an author in the first book he kills off a character that you would think is never going anywhere and it's and it's the first of a long series and after that point you realize Oh, anyone could go at any time hmm. in, in any fashion. So there, there are absolutely no rules, um, which makes it a lot more fun and exciting. That's um, what I loved about the TV show 24, I just have to say, is that, you know, you start watching this and you think, oh, this is going to be a very ordinary conventional thriller. And then they kill off a character that you really like. And then you're, yeah. then you're just shocked. And then you're heartbroken. And then the next day, then you just realize, oh my gosh, this is going to be just like real life. Yes. I had a moment in the fifth book. So he's published five of his seven in the series so far. And in the fifth book, towards the end, there's a death. And I closed the book for at least a week, probably more than that. I was enraged. I was upset. I didn't think I could go on with the series without this character. Mm. I just didn't. I was like so personally offended. Um, but I had to get back to it. I had to know what happened. So he did that to me. You know what he is? Is he's a crack dealer and he's got you hooked. And then you're just <laughs> yes. like, damn it, crack dealer. I hate you. I hate you so much, crack dealer. And then next oh. week you're like, I need that crack. Exactly. Oh but it's gosh. just of the highest quality. <laughs> okay. So I, I feel like we've already maybe covered this, but, I, but I'm just going to see if there's anything else to this question. What attracts people to it? You know, you said this about Gone with the Wind, which is absolutely true, but it's totally true with this too. This series has something for everyone. Like, I mean, there's tons of fighting and for people who are interested in like military strategy, tons of that, these wars are like realized on an epic scale. Um, and I wouldn't say that's something I'm super interested in, but because of the, it's the characters who I love and I'm fascinated by doing it, I'm totally in. Um, there's a lot of romance. There's um, 
a lot of humor. There's a lot of friendship displayed. Um, there's just this, these developments of these characters, characters who you think start out like just horrible people. And then they have sudden surprising virtuous moments and then the opposite also. Um, so I'd say most serious fiction readers love good characters. And these are some of the very, very best. So, um, they're the characters who stick with you and make you keep thinking about them and make you want to be like them or not like them, depending on which ones you're thinking about. So, um, yeah, there's absolutely something for everybody in it. Absolutely. Well, let me ask, how much research do you think George R. R. Martin had to do to make these books? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's impressive because I think especially all the, the war stuff, um, some people are war buffs, military buffs, and they, they study old strategies and they... In, gross themselves in that history and he seems like that kind of type because it just seems effortless I never could have conceived as if I were a fictional author I could never have written the battles the wars the strategy the way he does um yeah there's just a lot of details about this time period that uh, most people are not familiar with this time before um, electricity and so many modern advancements, um, yet he seems to come up with lots of clever inventions that may or may not have been around in our actual culture. And, um, yeah, I'd say quite a bit of research. And he develops some languages in the books as well, so he must be a linguist and have that kind of mind as well. So, um, yeah, pretty impressive all around. Well. Just incredible. Now, I, I've read just a little bit. There's some debate as to whether or not he will even finish the series. Because from this from this debate, well, there's two books to go. He's got five out of seven, so there's two there. Plus, there's the second part to the prequel that started 300 years before. That's three whole books. I think he's over 70 years old. And he's yes. like, hey, I feel fine. I feel fine. And everyone else is like hey, you're kind of old. Hurry up and write the books before you die. It's a major concern of mine. I've thought about it probably more than I should have. <laughs> when he, I mean, he has a very active role in the HBO series. He's credited as a writer. Or I'm not sure if he's credited as a writer or a producer, but he, they have, I don't exactly know what he does, but he's heavily involved. And when he started getting involved in the show, he backed off on his writing and most fan, book fans were not okay with that um, because he's over 70. He's obese. I think some people were especially worried that COVID would get him, mm. but he, um, he made some posts to social media or on his blog saying during the quarantine, he was writing more than ever. So hopefully that is true because there's rumors that book six will be released by the end of the year. Ooh. But that's been said other times. So <laughs> us book fans are just twiddling our thumbs, hoping for the best. Okay. Um, okay, very cool. Um, I thought we would end the uh, specific book discussion with He Leadeth Me. So please describe this book. Um, so there is a priest um, in the... I should know the time frame better. The 
40s, 50s, 60s? Four, 40s. I just can't remember if it's during the war or after, but um, he is um, sent on a missionary assignment to Russia and to Jesuit, and that's what he's always wanted. It has been his hope for his whole priesthood is to go try to convert Russia um, in whatever little way that he can is his, his big dream. And um, it in some ways works out, in some ways does not, but he is first sent to Poland and, oh, it is World War II because Poland becomes occupied and by Russians and they are restricting its freedoms. This is a non-fiction story. Um, restricting the freedoms of the church heavily and then he's eventually rounded up as like a, like a war criminal um, is what Russia is, is calling it. Um, and they're heavily suspicious of all priests because communism and religion don't mix whatsoever. Um, so he's sent to a labor camp and um, it's he is um, in the Soviet Union in Siberia for in Poland imprisoned for I think a total of like 19 years mm. and um, of course not imprisoned for anything that the United States would regard as a real crime his crime is being a priest he's not a spy but his journey is fascinating and by that I mean mostly his interior journey he starts out every chapter with the plot essentially of his life, like where he is in time and space, but then he gets into where he was at spiritually during that time. And, um, he spent like five years in essentially solitary confinement, um, in Lubyanka prison, which was one of the more intimidating and terrible prisons in the gulag. And, um, his only human interaction was interrogations from the guards that didn't even happen every day, but you never knew exactly when you're going to get called to interrogate. They were trying to trap him into admitting to crimes. And, um, but he discovers some like incredibly deep spiritual truths during his time of imprisonment, but also his time of labor. And, but he'll describe them as so simple. He says like, it's nothing new what God revealed to me. It's just, it was new to me. And he had, you know, his own conversion within, of course, he was already a converted soul. He's a Roman Catholic priest, but he was, um, just had a even deeper conversion out of total necessity because you either grow closer to God during such a trial or you despair and, and die in some way or another. So, um, the spiritual truths he has revealed to him he feels called to share with the world and it's just incredible wow that just sounds really 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 great um you know you mentioned that he was sent to prison for crimes that nobody in the west would consider to be crimes i've been reading the gulag archipelago lately by solzhenitsyn and i've been reading other things about the gulags and you know, in 1937 alone, I think Stalin sent something like 4 million people to the Gulag. Mm. And, you know, most of the time it was just on the basis of suspicion. Yep. And if you thought that, say, a woman was guilty of a crime, well, that meant that her husband and her children 
and her parents and her brothers and sisters also had to go. Oh, wow. So, I mean, the spillover effect was just ridiculous. And I've actually was listening to somebody talk about North Korea tonight, and they have a very similar system that if one member of a family commits a crime, the whole family might wind up in the gulag. And then to top it off, you, you're not allowed to know who did what, if anybody uh -huh. did anything. So, I mean, there could be 10 of you in there, and you just have no... No clue who did anything, and then, you know, you might get a 10-year sentence. You might get a 25-year sentence. So you're saying this man spent 19 years in this prison. Yes, I believe that's correct. It might have even been more. Well, no, he was not in prison the entire time, but that was the total of, like, his labor camps in different places he was sent. But in the, in the Lubyanka prison itself, it was something more like five years. Okay. Who would benefit from reading this book primarily, do you think? Hmm. Nearly anyone. Um, I think most people would be interested in just like how a human soul survives this kind of torture. You know, he wasn't exactly physically tortured, but the labor camps were in extreme. Like they were in Siberia and they were barely clothed, they were barely fed, and this went on for years and years, so I think it's appropriate to call that torture, but oh, for sure. mostly it was torture of the soul, you know, with the loneliness and the the, the moments of doubt, and um, so just, it's fascinating to think of how a, a human character can can undergo these, these sufferings, um, but anyone who just wants to understand how God is working in their own life because he tries to make these truths applicable to anyone, any person. Because he, it, for him, it boils down to what the will of God is and how to do it. Um, I won't, like, reveal his big, his big um, conclusion or his big punchline, but it was very, because he'll explain it better than me anyways, but understanding how to discern the will of God and what it means to carry it out in your own life it, it's applicable to absolutely anybody not just priests not just imprisoned people but you know mothers fathers kids well teens i guess you need at least be a teenager to grasp it um married unmarried vocation not vocation it's um i'd say anybody <laughs> well something i want to ask then is is this book roughly like one half stories of life in the gulag maybe what led up to it and what came after it and then maybe also one half uh, a spiritual memoir yes i would say so i mean he explains his circumstances so that we can then understand where he was at spiritually and in those times so and the story itself is very interesting um but what's even more edifying, if you will, is um, the spiritual applications of what was happening to him at that time. Hmm. Well, do you think that you pretty much said anybody could benefit from reading it? Do, do you think non-Christians would take away quite a bit from it as well? I do. I think an open-minded non-Christian would appreciate the strength of the human spirit that is displayed. Um, of course, I would hope that they would take away much, much more than that. Um, it is distinctly Catholic, especially because he has a whole chapter on the Mass and how that he offers the Mass 
in these camps that he's in and he recites the mass by heart when he's imprisoned by himself and how he was sustained by the Eucharist and how the Eucharist was supplied to him covertly. So that would be kind of new for Protestants or for non-Christians, but it's very, it's put, it's put forth in a very non pushy way. It's just, it, and I love the way he writes. It's just like, these are the facts and the truths of my life. Like they're not, he never says like, this is my truth or this is how I see things. He's just like, this is what it is, but he keeps it simple. And it's just, he just almost takes for granted. Like, well, the reader's surely going to believe this too. So I'm not going to waste time on explaining things. So a non-Christian or non-Catholic may need to read it with a Catholic buddy, I guess, to interpret a few things here and there, but he really doesn't get very theologically deep. It's just profound. Well, something that I heard a long time ago about literature, and I, I, most of the time I tend to believe it, is that stories that are the most deeply personal are simultaneously the most universal. Hmm. And so for this man to just, I guess, you know, go through this extreme situation, he's, he's basically in a forced labor camp for 19 years. Um, people in the gulags oftentimes were fed about 300 calories a day. Um, and then just in frozen Siberia on top of this. I mean, so there's the gripping story aspect, but then there's the personal spiritual memoir that, hey, this is this is my heart. This is what I was thinking. This is what I was feeling. This is how I changed. This is how I did not become bitter, did mm-hmm. not become bitter and filled with resentment. I, that's a very powerful story. It sounds yes, like anybody could really benefit was. from it, really. I think so. Any human. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's step back and just look at the big picture about reading in general. Um, okay. I have. Let's just start with maybe questions about your kids. Um, okay. So in the future, what are the pleasures and benefits of literature that you hope they will enjoy? Well, my daughters are five and almost three, and... We, as a family, are already blessed that they enjoy reading so much. Our five-year-old kind of taught herself to read at least a year ago, and she reads, she could read for hours a day, not necessarily sequentially, but um, when you add it all up, it's probably hours, and she will often read to her younger sister. And Josie cannot read, but she will sit and look at a book for quite a while. And um, I hope this is because they see Sean and I reading, Um, or maybe we read enough to them as younger kids, or maybe it's an inherited gene from me especially, but, um, Sean certainly loves reading as well. So, but I hope that as they grow into bigger readers, they start to learn, um, lessons from books right now. It's pure entertainment and we try to throw in books about manners and, books about the faith and books about potty training and whatever else we can try to squeeze into their head just for the fact of like memory rolling around, you know, like lines being recited and memorized like that. Hopefully that sticks, you know, and it does sometimes because Claire will tell me something, uh, a a biblical thing, like a Bible story or some fact of the faith. And I'm like, I don't remember ever telling you this you must have gotten it from one of your books. So it's cool that it's already regurgitable. But as they get older, I'd like to see the enjoy books as friends like I do, but also to just um, experience beauty 
through literature experience um, the good aspects of humanity and the deep life lessons that good authors really try to um, try to put forth with their craft. You said so many things there. It would just be next to impossible for me to summarize, but you just <laughs> talked about the beauty of good prose and learning life lessons and just the sheer pleasure of getting hooked on a good plot, good character, uh, books as friends. You know, that a book honestly can be an excellent lifelong friend. Yes. And certain books, I think we talked about this with Little Women, they can grow up with you. You read them at one age and it's one book and then you read them 10 years later when you're an adult and then suddenly it's a different book. So that's, that's just, you just said so many good things. Thank you. I just really appreciate that. Okay. So a second kid question. This one has a little bit of a lead in. Um, many parents and psychologists have just worried about kids staring at screens too much. And honestly, this goes way back because in the fifties, Something like 90% of American homes got a television. In the 40s, it was like well under 10%. And then by the 1970s, that's when people really thought staring at screens was a, a legitimate problem. This is before cell phones. This is actually before personal computers. And then I remember in the 80s, people worrying, you know, some people's television is on all day long. You know, they would say like the average house, the TV is on seven hours a day. And people just thought, nobody's thinking anymore. They're just like looking at these stupid screens and nobody is doing any thinking. And now the screens are just with us all the time. They're on our phones and iPads, etc. Do you personally worry about kids, your kids, your kids, and screen time? Yes, a lot. Um... You know, a, a parent's job is to say no to what's bad for a kid because a kid's prefrontal cortex is so underdeveloped. They need adults to make choices for them because if my girls had their way, they would eat dessert all day long and um, watch shows because they, from what they've experienced from TV and, and tablets and phones, they think it's great. And I don't blame them because those two things, especially sugar and the screen, have been studied enough. There's still a lot to be studied, but studied enough to know that it is addictive like a drug. Like, you know, when brains are mapped, they, the pleasure centers of the brain are lighting up and the addictive potential parts of the brain are lighting up. So I know how enslaved I am to my own screens at times, like... You know, I go through phases where I'm like, I was on social media too much today, or I was just texting too much today, or I just enjoy the thrill of getting an email and seeing the notification on my phone. I recognize that, and I sometimes do better than others at regulating it, but I'm 32 years old. My brain should be pretty much done developing at least the crucial parts. So my kids are five and almost three, so they've got so much development left and I can't trust them to make good decisions. So I have to regulate it for them and they have to be told no and they have to cry about it, you know, however many times it takes. But um, the screen can be an excellent babysitter. It's so tempting to just want an hour to yourself. Um, and it's, the, it's being used as a babysitter for infants and infants, especially under the age of 12 months are 
are experiencing the biggest detrimental effects according to the early research that's out there. So, um, yes, I do worry about screen time quite a lot. Kids who, the more screen time a child has, it's been shown that the less um, able they are to entertain themselves, meaning that when the screen is off, they follow their parent around whining, saying they're bored. They, mm. they bother their siblings more. They... And so it's just like an endless cycle where a mom feels like I can't, they won't leave me alone. So I have to put on a show. I, or else I wouldn't be, I mean, moms have tons to do during the day. They have to feed their families, wash their clothes, keep the house clean, the barest minimum, let alone do their own career work or drive places or try to keep hobbies, try to keep up with relationships. There's so many things that a mom needs to do. So to give themselves a little break, they're like, yeah, I will turn on the show. But then the more they do it, the more the kid cannot use their imagination and cannot um, sit down and read a book. A book would be boring if all if what you're used to is screens. Um, a book requires you to use your own imagination. Whereas my kids are still reading picture books, for sure. Um, Claire's getting into some chapter books, which we love to see her do, but... You know, it's normal for kids their age to enjoy the pictures in a book, but they're also enjoying the story. So um, it's, I feel very blessed that they already appreciate books and that, you know, they'll ask for a show quite often, And but, you know, the fits are getting shorter and they're starting to expect that a show is a treat rather than a everyday thing. So, yes, long, long answer to the screen question, but it's something we think about quite a bit in this house. Yeah, I think screens are basically a tool and basically good. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like every other tool. Like you've got a car. You don't necessarily have a five-year-old drive a car. And, you know, there's a bunch of 30-year-olds, you know, maybe who are drunk drivers who should not be driving a car either. So it's not that I'm anti-screen. That's too simplistic. But a lot of the things that you mentioned are just gigantic causes for worry. We, we know that people hate being bored. And so adults, and I suppose maybe kids, will just reach for a screen the second they're bored. But boredom is where creativity comes from. People yes. are bored, so they come up with something to do. You know, as kids, maybe they go outside and play and use their imaginations. And if they just never have worked that muscle, that muscle is going to be weak and flabby and atrophied. So to me, that's the gigantic worry is, is just people will not be able to handle boredom. Uh, they will not be creative. And gosh, I could just go on. They'll become sedentary. Uh, that won't be good for them. They will later just be completely colonized by the media. They will not be able to think for themselves. They will just yeah. think the way that they're told, which that's a nightmare scenario as far as I'm concerned. I guess my, my last worry is people will not develop an attention span. I, I honestly have got this theory that whoever can pay attention to anything for three hours in the future is going to wind up being the president of the United <laughs> States or the richest person on earth because yes. they're going to have the ability to concentrate. Those are my worries with screen. That, yes, I, I can't agree more. Let me ask, do you have a, a rule or a guideline that you follow? Like, for example, it, it was probably easier before there were iPhones, but some parents would say you can't turn on the TV until 
ah, uh, pick a time, 7 p.m., that kind of thing. And I knew a parent, he was ex-military. His rule in his household was kids could watch, they could have four hours of screen time per week. It didn't matter where the screen was. If it was on the phone, mm-hmm. fine. If it was on the TV, fine. So he would give them eight poker chips, and every poker chip stood for a half an hour. So whenever they wanted any screen time, they just traded in their poker chips. And there was no monitoring other than that. Like if they wanted to blow all their four hours in the very first day, he was not going to complain or criticize. He was just going to let them do their thing. So I guess those are some sample rules or guidelines. Do you have anything like that? We do. So almost two years ago, Sean and I went on a marriage retreat and they encouraged coming up with what they call a rule or rules of life and they're different for every family but it's rules to just help you overcome your whatever your vices are and and grow in holiness and your rules shift and change throughout your life and throughout your marriage but we thought a pretty easy rule would be to take our tv off the wall we only had one in our house but um and we didn't have it hooked up to cable but you know we had netflix and we had a dvd player and things like that um and then the temptation is so minimalized. We have a small TV, and we have since got rid of that TV because it's not a good quality one anyways. We have a small one that's kind of portable. We put it in our exercise room when we need it for, like, streaming a cycling video or something. Or, um, But then we'll move it out to the basement recreational area if we want to watch a movie as a family or as a couple or have a, a kid show on. But it's off most of the time, and it has to be operated by the adult. And um, it's not unusual that a a whole week will go by without it being on. So just, like, lack of availability helps the whole family a lot. Because when it's just there on your wall calling at you, it's, it's so hard to say no to. But when you have to go get it out of the the gym or (laughs) plug it in like it just these little barriers help so much and um the kids know that it's not just a part of their day it's like this is a special night so we're gonna watch something as a family or you know it's been a week like let's find something that will help your brain grow a little bit and watch it for less of an hour like so it's just, it's a treat rather than a, a norm. So we, we don't have like a system in place for it yet. And I know systems will need to come as the kids get older. Someday, I guess they could have a smartphone, but I'm hoping we don't even have to do that for a very, very, very long time. Um, they won't even need a computer for their homeschooling work. Their curriculum is all like books and papers. So we'll be able to avoid it for quite a while. And we tell babysitters that they just don't, they don't watch any screens because if we're paying someone, they better be playing with the kids. <laughs> um, our, you know, our free babysitters, meaning like our, our parents or siblings, you know, we'll give them a little more leeway to, to hang out. But also the kids don't watch stuff alone if we're going to be around. So we know so we can discuss it. We, there's never anything that we're going to be concerned with because everything is pre-screened, but also, it's just good to have conversations about what they're watching to make sure their brains are active, but also like, oh, did this character learn something like, you know, about picking up his room or whatever? And just so when questions arise, we're around to answer them. So 
That's yeah. Good. yeah, it's very good. Lots of lots of guidelines and thought spot guidelines for the future. You know, not having the TV available, according to the book Atomic Habits, that is actually the second best way to change any habit is to change your environment, which is mm -hmm. what you did. If something's not available, it's like, well, if I'm trying to not eat chocolate, but there's no chocolate in the house and the stores are closed, uh, it's not the easiest thing, but it is the second most effective method. So, so props to you. Good job. Okay, I have to ask what's the first. You have to change your identity. Mm. And I'll give you an example. Like, let's say I'm a lifelong smoker. I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, and I see myself as a smoker and all the rest. And then I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, if you quit smoking, maybe you won't die, and then you can be there for your kids. So then I go home, and I think, you know, I'm a father. And I really, really, really want to be there for my kids. And I'm a father more than I'm a smoker. And so, like, if you just use that identity, I'm a father, I'm a father, it becomes a lot easier to do difficult things, like quit smoking. So a similar example is, I guess, people who adopt dietary structures. Like, people say, oh, I'm just trying to eat less. Those people are kind of destined to fail, but people who adopt a strategy, like they say, oh, I'm paleo, or I'm keto, or I'm vegan, or I'm Whole30, you know, then your decisions are just much more simple because you go to the event, and then there's some cake, and then you say, well, I'm paleo, you know, or I'm Whole30, we don't eat that. You know, so it's just part of it, instead of having to fight with yourself, instead you cling to your identity. I like that. It's a good book, Atomic Habits. So, um, okay, let's talk about some objections of non-readers. You and I love to read, but I'm sure you've heard these type of objections from other people. Other people will say things like, why should I bother to read fiction? You know, I'm busy. You know, I've got like a job and a family. And plus, somebody just made it up. Why should I just read something mm. that somebody else just made up? Oh, so many reasons. I believe that the human soul is created to appreciate beauty, and that is certainly not just graphic visual beauty, though that is very important, but the beauty of an uplifting story or the beauty of a character who is good, um, or just the, the life lessons that come from fiction, just because it's fiction doesn't mean you can't learn. I think I've learned more from fiction than I have from nonfiction at times, so... Um, I think well-written books are just very good for our souls and like rounding us out as human beings. And they can provide a window into experiences that we're never, ever going to have, you know, a, a book written about like, gosh, the kite runner. I remember reading that in high school or college, probably college. Are you familiar with that book? Yeah. Yeah. It's the story of the boy in Afghanistan during the Taliban, I believe. Yes. It was horrific. I, after I finished them, I thought to myself, I'm not ever rereading this. I can't, but it was an important read to know that that is happening to people every day. Those horrific things are happening because of the political regime that exists in their country. And so um, we need to know these things. And if we were, if I was only reading fiction about um, living in the Midwest as a Catholic mom and wife, like how boring. I mean, honestly, like it's not, 
it would not be fun, but to read about made up places and made up events, but real human people who are carrying the, the things out, that's what's fun and it's what's good for the soul and good for the brain. So I, I guess I'm hearing in part that it also provides a window into other people's lives and other countries and maybe other time periods as well. Yes. And you know, it's always important to learn about human beings and good, good writers understand human beings. Um, and there's never going to be an end to learning about human beings because God made us to be this, this kind of infinite, like, I don't know. You just can't, you can't say like, all right, I've learned everything there is to know about the human first. There's just no way. And so anything you learn about a well-written character in a book is going to help you in your life. Uh, what, oh, for sure. You realize it or not. For so sure. We're we the all most... interact with people and relationships are never easy. Um, so yeah, got some positives coming there. Okay. Now, some people on the flip side would say, why should I bother reading nonfiction? Isn't nonfiction maybe just boring and technical, like a manual? Or if it's something like true crime, then, well, what's the point of that? Then you're just looking for cheap thrills. So mm -hmm. why, why bother reading nonfiction? I used to be the person who asked that. I thought all nonfiction books might as well just be a newspaper or a technical magazine, which never, I never found interesting. I still don't really like reading the news. I kind of read it out of like a duty to humanity, but I don't enjoy it as much. But um, I had the great um, benefit of meeting with a, a Opus Dei priest as a spiritual director for at least five years, I think. And um, part of his... Um, like, uh, not rule of life, because that's my other thing. Um, I can't remember the phrase for it, but part of it's like spiritual norms that a person should adhere to in the Opus Dei world is, is doing spiritual reading, but also doing professional reading. And it, I didn't really get it at the time. I was working full-time as a nurse, and I'm like, there's only so much reading I can do about pathophysiology and, <laughs> and patient care. There's, it's, I'm going to run out of, I mean, I don't just want to sit at home and read textbooks, but now I see my professional reading duty is reading about my vocation, like reading about parenting and educating my children and reading about um, being a better wife. And, and then spiritual reading, there's, it's always good for the soul to be learning more about the faith and how to put it into practice. So um, to, I, I feel like the purpose of nonfiction should be to make us better at what we're doing every day. Um, and possibly to give us ideas on thing, other ways we could be spending our time productively if we have like a, a blue flame of some kind, an interest of passion that needs to be, that could be channeled into productive work and productive loosely, not necessarily financially, but, you know, something that's going to better the world or at least better our family or better ourselves. So I think that's what nonfiction is for. It's awesome. Well, I have a few hypothetical questions for you. So let's just say you and your family are getting on a houseboat and you are going to travel the world for a year and all expenses are paid. But the only catch is you only have room for 10 books for yourself. 
Now, you, the kids can have unlimited books. Sean can have unlimited books. But part of the deal is, okay. is that you're limited to 10 books. What are the 10 books? Okay, I guess I better go back to my list. So, Gone with the Wind, Little Women, Time Traveler's Wife, He Leadeth Me. That's four. I would have to leave out these two series of seven, Harry Potter and Song. Uh, we could count those as one book each. Okay. Well, then that would be six. Okay. Um, definitely have to add the Bible. Um, oh, that would be seven. So maybe the catechism. Uh, I'm trying to think of another, like, indispensable spiritual book. Um, or, like, a parenting, you know, if... If we're just going to be on this houseboat for forever, I'd probably need one of my birth books to refresh myself every time I have a baby. Um, <laughs> well, you're only there for a year. Oh, you said a year. Okay. And, and you're allowed to get off and go visit the museum in France. Okay, so it's not just like, this is forever. Right, yeah. Or if you go into Japan, you can tour the city. It's fine. Okay. Well, gosh, then I guess I would just ask, like, can I have a library card? Can <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, I don't know if I can get to 10, but I would probably fill up the remaining 10, the remaining of the 10 with um, some great spiritual books that I can't uh, put my finger on at the moment. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I uh, was going to tease you. Hey, no Shakespeare, no Dante. What's going on here? No Mark Twain, oh. no Jane <laughs> Austen. But uh, actually, maybe we'll get to the, a little of that in the next question. Um, so the next question, I'm sure there's a world classic out there that you really wish you would read, but every time you've tried reading it, you just can't get into it. And I don't know, maybe you're a little disappointed in yourself that I just can't make myself read this world classic, this timeless classic. I just can't make myself do it. What is it? Oh, I guess I'll give you a recent example. I tried to read Wuthering Heights by um, Charlotte Bronte. I think it's Charlotte, not the other Bronte. Uh, Charlotte did Jane Eyre, Emily okay, Bronte. Okay, so it was Emily Bronte. Yeah. So Jane Eyre, I did like. It's not one that I would reread, but I liked it enough. Wuthering Heights, I got maybe a third of the way in, and I admired the prose. I appreciated the way it was written. Um I could see the talent of the author, but I hated the characters. I don't know if I've ever hated characters more than I hated wow. Heathcliff and Kathy. Um, I just, especially Kathy, I don't, I, I didn't find anything redeeming about them. And I guess people say that the redeeming, their love is what redeems them. But I just found their relationship to be completely selfish and they were horrible to sometimes horrible to each other, but horrible to everyone else in their lives. And I was depressed every time I read it, every time I opened it up <laughs> to read it, I was kind of fascinated by how evil they were, but it, I couldn't, I had to, look. I hate not finishing books, but as an adult who I now have, my time is very regimented and prioritized. And now I'm finally at a point in my life where I can be okay with not finishing a book. And that one I'm done with, I'm done trying it's sitting on my shelf. It looks, it's in a really nice edition cover and I may or may not leave it there, but I'm definitely not reading it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I figured out a little while back that 
if I live to be 100, then that's not enough time to read all the good books. So why suffer through something that you yes. just can't make yourself read? Yes. Um, now, I believe you've answered this question indirectly, but do you reread books? Yes, I do. The ones that I think I'm going to learn from some more, but mostly the ones that I've just thoroughly enjoyed. The easy, well, not easy, but the the fiction that's just like comfortable and fun. Um, any of the books on my list that I gave you, I've reread all of them, usually many times. Um, so that's when that's when you know the book has become a friend. Is when you want to reread it and you look forward to rereading it. So, like on my honeymoon, I took books. I don't know if that's weird, but um, we went. We spent a lot of time on the beach reading. Well, I was reading and, and Sean was napping, or I would we would read out loud to each other. We've never done that since, but we did that on our honeymoon on the beach. And all I did, the, I think the only book I brought was I brought my Kindle, which had all the Harry Potter books on it, just because I wanted something so comfortable and familiar and friendly. I don't. That's just what I wanted as like a, a reward for the stress of the wedding and just entering into this new exciting phase of life. I wanted an old friend. <laughs> so. That's awesome. That's yeah. Who who better to bring, you know, I guess in a spiritual way or a virtual way, you know, mm-hmm. in into your new life other than an old friend. Yeah. Um, so I guess my last two questions are, what do you wish I would have asked that I did not ask? I don't know if I have anything here, Tim. You always ask the good questions. Oh, I'm glad. I guess you could have asked, like, did I ever want to be an author or anything because I love to read so much, but not really. Um, I, uh, the more, the older I get and the more, um, good books I read, the more I realize there are people out here who are doing this very well. And I, don't need to waste my time. <laughs> well, I, wrote, I played around with creative writing as a kid. And I thought that was fun, but no way. Now I'm too self-conscious. I'd rather only spend time on what I know is going to produce some kind of real fruit. You know, you, you remind me of so many different things when you say that. Flannery O'Connor. I just love Flannery O'Connor. I love her work. And she is a world-class author and she gets taught in universities all over the world. Uh, she said, if I would have known how bad I was when I started, I never would have started. So I, I'm glad no, <laughs> I'm glad she didn't know. It makes me so happy that she didn't know because she just wound up being absolutely fantastic. Wow. Well, it's kind of say she's humble, but true humility is having an accurate view of yourself in the eyes of God. So maybe she leaned a little in error. <laughs> It's kind of hard to know with her because she's so funny. So she says things. Yes. She says things that are just outlandish. And okay, half of them are true, and then the other half yeah. you just don't quite know. And she never tells you which ones are true and which ones aren't true. She so. sure had some zingers attributed oh, yeah. to her name. Well, another thing that I was reminded of was something that Tom Wolfe, uh, the great Tom Wolfe, the new, the Bonfire of the Vanities, not the old Tom Wolfe, not Look Homeward Angel, but the Bonfire of the Vanities, right stuff, electric Kool-Aid acid test. He was quoting somebody who said, you know, everybody has one great book in them. And he said, that's probably true because everybody can write their life story. Hmm. But then Tom Wolfe said, 
but that doesn't mean everybody has two. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where I guess the really great author comes into play is that, sure, after you've written your life story and you've got that great book, congratulations, comma, but what else do you, what else do you have? Yeah. So. That's good. Yeah, there's there's your Tom Wolf for you. Jamie, this has just been absolutely great. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful. Uh, and I'm just perennially amazed by how much you've read. Now, I'd like to just do my favorite question and fast forward to age 100. You're sitting on the porch and you're just enjoying the day. And Sean is there and your children are there and your grandchildren are there. And somebody comes up to you, one of the grandchildren, and says, Grandma, Tell us what makes you happiest about your life as a bibliophile. <laughs> I would say, little girl, the fact that you know the word bibliophile means that long ago I did something right. <laughs> but, oh, if, if my kids taught their kids to love reading, I would be happy with that. Um, because then I wouldn't have to worry about not having taken them around the world for a world-class education of, you know, different cultures and things because they would have been able to do that through books. Um, I wouldn't have to worry about imparting the, the deep spiritual truths. I'm supposed to educate my children as best I can, but if they're reading good spiritual books and reading the Bible and learning how to pray, then they're going they're going to learn those spiritual truths um, in some way or another. And I would, I would be happy knowing that my family just saw beauty through books, um, especially if the world they're living in was not beautiful. And I wouldn't have to feel bad about that um, because there's only so much I can do as a parent. There's a lot of ugliness out there, but if they're still seeing the beauty of humanity as God made us through a book, I would be happy about that. That is a really amazing answer. I just love how you detailed how books fill in the gap. They fill in the gap spiritually and travel-wise and aesthetically. Books just fill in the gap. Jamie, thank you so much. This was incredibly fun. Thanks, Tim. It was fun for me, too. I will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. Next episode, next Tuesday.